Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. If you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your mobile phone, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter number 2 in this morning. Um, <clears throat> I just want to welcome you back to part two of our series. It is titled Tension, which is also subtitled Living in the Balance. And if you were not here last week, then you have missed a lot because we took a lot of time last week to set this series up. And I want to encourage you to listen to that message. Um, and you can do that either on SoundCloud or our uh, church website, fbcborn.org. Um, it just take a, t- a couple minutes and uh, get caught up. But in the meantime, <clears throat> let me just give you a real quick thumbnail sketch of what we talked about. You see, the reason why we named this series tension is because it's based on a very simple idea. Tension at its most basic form is a result of two or more forces pulling on something to stretch it or to make it tight or rigid like a rope. Okay, that's tension. And as we talked about last week, there's a difference uh, uh, in in different kinds of tension. There's a bad tension like a tension headache or, or the tension between people. And there's a good tension like structural tension or the tension that's required for lifting and tying things down. Now, whether the tension is good or bad, tension is simply this idea that there are two or more forces at work stretching something to make it rigid or tight. Tension, then, is the, is the stiffness that is the result and is a reality that's created by these opposing forces. With, with, without these opposing forces, there is no tension. And, and, and I know this seems like an odd thing to discuss on a Sunday morning, but the truth is simply this. The Bible is filled with lots of tension. There are lots of places in the Bible where we find tension. And, and, and tension actually, uh, to, truth be told, helps us to see the truth of who God is. For example, <clears throat> the Bible says that Jesus was fully God, okay? but at the same time it says he was fully man. So which is it? Well, it's actually both. Because the truth exists in the tension between these two points. He is both fully God and fully man. Now theologians have tried to define this tension and, and to explain it and how it works, right? And how God could be a man and how God could, I mean, how Jesus could be a man and how Jesus could be God. And in their attempts to define this, what they've done is they've labeled this tension between, you know, Jesus' manhood and Godhood. They labeled it as the hypostatic union. Okay, that's the real term that Jesus um, that they use to describe Jesus being both God and man. A hypostatic union, which really <clears throat> is just a fancy way of, of saying we we don't know. <laughs> we don't know how it works. We're just going to name it something fancy so you think we are smart. But uh, but the reality is is we don't really fully understand. All we know is that He is both God and man. You see, the, 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 the truth exists in this tension. Because without one or the other, you lose something. If, if Jesus isn't God, you've lost salvation. If Jesus is not man, you've lost the sacrifice, and again, you've lost salvation. Okay, it, it's, it's tension like that, and tension like the, the, the tension between grace and truth that we find in the Bible. The Bible says that Jesus was full of both grace and truth. You see, it, 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 grace says, I don't condemn you. Truth says, go and sin no more. Grace says, I forgive you. Truth says, you're accountable. And Jesus was full to the brim of both grace and truth. In Jesus exists this tension that reveals the truth about who he is and the truth about salvation. Because the truth is this, you cannot have salvation without truth truth, and you cannot have salvation without grace. Salvation requires both. The reality of salvation exists in the tension between grace and truth. And the Bible... It's filled with this kind of tension, like the idea that God is, you know, is completely 100% sovereign over the universe and over every little detail, yet I'm, I'm still responsible for my actions, right? That God is in control of every little molecule in the universe, but somehow I... I'm still accountable for the choices I make, even though God's in control of everything. All right, so well, which is it? Which, which one is it? Is it God sovereign or am I accountable? Well, it's both. Well, how does that work? I don't know. <laughs> but that's just the truth. Or how, does, how about the tension of the Trinity? God is one, all right? But, God, but at the same time, God exists as three persons who were unique and different. And they are all equally God. So which is it? Well, it's both. Well, how can that be? I don't know. <laughs> God is bigger than my imagination. But what I do know is that the truth exists in this tension between these two ideas. Because because that's how God has revealed himself to us. God is one, but he's still three persons, and they are all God. Okay? The Bible's filled with this kind of tension. 
And this kind of tension actually is necessary for us to be able to see the truth about who God is and His will for our lives. And so today we're going to, we're going to continue this discussion. We're going, to, we're going to continue down this path. And we're going to look at another point of tension in the Bible. In fact, we're going to look at several tension points uh, to help us to understand more about the truth that we find in Scripture. Now, before we get started today, okay, uh, what I want to do is I want to encourage you to take a minute and just kind of sit back in your chair and relax. Take a deep breath, right, and just let it out, okay? And I just want you to take a moment and relax and, and, and just let go of the cares that you have in the world. Right? I want you to clear your head. I want you to open your mind. In fact, I want you to decide right now to open your mind and your heart to what we're going to talk about this morning. And I want you to decide right now that you're going to hear and listen to everything that we're going to talk about this morning. And once you have then heard everything, and once you've heard all the details, then and only then will you make up <clears throat> your mind about this, okay? About the tension um, point that we're going to talk about this morning. Only after you hear everything will you draw a conclusion about it. Because the tension point that we're going to talk about today is perhaps one of the most controversial points of tension in the entire Bible. It's probably one of the most debated. It's probably one of the most uh, misunderstood. It's certainly one of the most abused tension points uh, used by false teachers in the entire Bible. It's a tension point that can create division even among some of the most well-meaning and sincere and loving Christ followers. Well, that's why I want you to relax. That's why I want you to open your mind. That's why I want you to hear the whole story and then make up your own mind on this subject. Because today, you will need to make up your mind. And, 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 and so the tension point that we're going to talk about today actually has to do with our behavior after we're saved. Okay? It is all about how we obey God. It's the tension point of obedience. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. That's not so controversial, is it? I mean, the tension you know, between the idea of a, an eternal hell and the idea of a loving God is more controversial than that. I, I mean, we're talking about obedience. Okay? But how, how can that be controversial? <laughs> well, I say that, you know, um, and, and I agree that, that, that the tension between, you know, between hell and eternal hell, the state of permanent suffering, and, and, you know, versus a loving God who sends people to that hell... It's something a lot of people struggle with. And, and there's a lot of tension in that. There's no question about it. There's a lot of tension in that subject. But <clears throat> for all of those who struggle with this idea, even more people struggle with becoming obedient to God and His Word. And do you know how I know that more people struggle with obedience? Because I know... <laughs> I struggle with obedience. And I know that you struggle with obedience. I know that everyone in here struggles to be obedient to God. Okay? And, and if you think you're not struggling with obedience, then you're just struggling uh, with lying to yourself. Because the truth is that if you're human on this side of, um, uh, of eternity, you're struggling to obey God. Our spirit and our flesh are in constant conflict with each other. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 5.17, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other. Okay, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You talk about tension, right? Okay, that is real tension right there. Obedience is a real tension in the Bible and in our lives. But what makes this so controversial? I mean, why is this such a controversial subject? The, 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 the subject of obedience is so difficult and it's controversial because the opposing forces that come together to create this tension are so strong and they have such a gravitational pull that many people in their sincere effort to follow God tend to lose their balance and they fall to either one end of the spectrum or the other end. Okay? They, they gravitate towards one end or the other instead of clinging to the tension that's created between these two points, they end up falling towards one and or the other. But between these two tension points is where the truth is. But just like with grace and truth, you know, we want it to be one way or the other. We want it to be about grace. Okay? You know, if, if, if we want it to be about grace, everything's okay. Or we want it to be about truth, where, where you just give me some rules, right? But we don't want it to be about both. We don't want both. We just want one or the other. Because if it's both, 
If it's both of these things, then I need to balance. I need to keep both things in view. You need to balance between grace and truth. And that sometimes it's hard because it's easier to be like, grace says, you know, it doesn't matter, so you're forgiven, right? Truth says, it does matter, and you're accountable. Living in this tension between the two isn't easy. But that's what we're called to do. And it's just the same with obedience. Now let me just lay my cards on the table and just tell you where we're going, okay? All right, this is, might be hard to hear. But it's this. If you follow Christ, your obedience to God and His Word is absolutely expected. Let me say that again. Okay? If you follow Christ, if you are a Christ follower, if you put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, if you are a born-again believer, if you're a Christian or whatever else you want to call yourself, your obedience to God and His Word is absolutely, unquestionably expected of you. You are expected to obey. You are expected to live out biblical obedience. And biblical obedience means simply to hear, trust, submit, and surrender to God and obey His Word. That's what you're expected to do. And this obedience applies to every part of your life. It applies to how you love and worship God. It applies to how much time you spend with Him. It applies to your godliness and your personal holiness, which is the moral standard you're supposed to live by and obey. Okay? Because there actually is a moral standard to live by, whether we like to admit it or not. And it also applies to things that we do for others, the good works that we do for others, because you are expected to obey and to do good to others. You're expected as believers, to obey and live the way that God wants you to live. Now, I know a statement like this, for some people, will immediately cause them to experience tension in their body. In fact, some of you who you know, are hearing this are already tense. I can see it. Some of you, you know, some of the people that are listening on SoundCloud, right, are getting tense. They're driving on the road and getting tense as they hear this. Because many of us hearing that, hearing the fact that our obedience to God and His Word is expected, really something in us says that's in contrast to what we know about our relationship with God. It's in contrast to what we know about salvation. In fact, many people who are confronted with this reality will immediately knee-jerk react and say, well, that's just wrong because we're saved not by our obedience. We're saved by grace through faith, not by our works. How can you possibly say our obedience is expected? How can a Christian be expected to obey? How can, can you say God expects us to be in obedience? It's all about grace. It's all about faith. I mean, we can't save ourselves. And this is, this is the, the truth that we cannot save ourselves. That, that's actually right. right? <laughs> we can't save ourselves. Right? And this is one side of the tension. Grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith, which is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2. That is, in fact, the truth. Okay, but that's one end of the spectrum. That's one end of the, that's one tension point. And at the extreme end of this, there are people who embrace this anchor point so much they refuse to say that God has any expectation of us beyond loving Him and and, and other people, because we're saved by grace. Whether whether you know, and whatever we do, because of that, we're we're forgiven. So there's no more hard and fast moral laws or, or rules or there's no any moral code to live by because it's all relative. It's all about our culture and about how we embrace our culture. As long as we believe in Jesus, then it doesn't matter. And because others are saved by grace the same way that, that, that we are, then we need to be really careful not to burden them and have expectations of them and be careful not to be too harsh and not to talk so much about obedience and sin and consequences of sin because, because we don't want to offend them. Okay? We don't want them to become offended and turn away from God's grace and not believe in Jesus. I mean, if we upset them and we offend them, they won't believe in Jesus. If we hurt their feelings, they're not going to believe in Jesus. But then on the other hand, there are those who think, well, that's right. (laughs) Obedience is expected. In fact, if you're not obedient, then you're not even a Christian. You're not even saved. Okay? Because James says, faith without works is dead. Okay? Obedience is expected. Show me your faith by your works. And I'll show you, I mean, show me your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. Which is exactly what, what James is talking about. James, the brother of Jesus, said that. And this is the opposite side of this tension. It's the, it's the counterbalance point of this tension. 
And it's the extreme end of where, you know, where we, it's the extreme end of where we actually find things like legalism, okay? And, and people who are so focused on morality and self-righteousness and doing, you know, good works and doing the works that they're called to do, and it, that it becomes a means, it becomes an end in itself instead of a means to an end. And in the process, what they end up doing, okay, is they take grace and they make it more like an afterthought, Right? Because it's all about doing and, and obeying. In fact, there's a false Christianity that, that, that's so focused on obedience and works, they say, well, you're saved by grace only after everything else that you can do. You see, it's about your efforts. Grace isn't sufficient to save you. It, it only fills in the gaps of where you fall short. And you better not fall too short because there's not enough grace to cover it all up. Okay, it's about what you do. Okay, and, and that's where all the rules are come from, and, and that's where the rules are created, and the to do to loot, the to do list and the don't list are created. And this in this extreme side of this tension, this is where we find all the false teachers who use this position to justify what we call works righteousness. Okay, which simply means that, that you do good things and live the right way and follow the right steps in order for God to love you, and, and, and that way He fully accepts you. And because you're so good, then He gives you. Grace. You see, on one end of the spectrum, it's all about grace and obedience means nothing. And on the other end of the spectrum, grace is only relevant for those who are completely obedient. Now, the truth is, the Bible does in fact say, in the words of Paul, you're saved by grace through faith. And at the same time, it also says, in the words of James, the brother of Jesus, that faith without works is dead. Both of these statements are in the Bible. Both of these statements are absolutely the truth. Both of these statements are, are relevant and apply to modern-day Christians today. Right? Both of these statements are the very words of God given by Himself. It's the very inspired word, both of them. Both of these statements, though seem to be going in opposite directions. It seems on the surface that these statements are opposed to one another, that they're at odds with one another. In fact, um, the Roman, um, not not the Roman, but the uh, Reformed Church um, leader, Martin Luther, he was so moved by God's grace and being saved by grace that he walked away from the legalistic system of the Catholic Church and he began his own movement known as Lutheranism during the Reformation. And he, because he was so focused on salvation and, and you know, by grace alone, that, that initially he took the book of James and took it out of his Bible, okay? Because he struggled with what it had to say about works, okay? He struggled to reconcile what James was saying about faith being without works is dead, all right? To what, compared to what Paul is saying about, you know, you're saved by grace through faith. And at one point he felt that James's work wasn't inspired, right? That, that the letter... <laughs> That was written by James, the brother of Jesus, wasn't God's inspired word. And so he removed it from his Bible. And the reason was simple. The tension between these two was too hard for him to deal with. It was too much for him to deal with because these two ideas seem to be completely at odds with one another. I mean, how can you you possibly reconcile these together? Well, on the one hand... You're saved by grace. On the other hand, your faith without works is, you know, which means obedience, is dead. Right? How do you reconcile that? Well, the way you reconcile that is the same way that you reconcile grace and truth. You simply live in the truth that the tension between these two creates. You live in the truth that is supported by the tension of these two ideas. Because it's in this tension is where the truth is. The truth about obedience exists between these two points. The truth about obedience is both about being saved by grace through faith and both about our faith without works is dead. The truth rests in the tension of these two. And in fact, the tension between these two is really explained quite well by the Apostle Paul himself. He explains it in, in, in the book of Ephesians in chapter number 2. In fact, so turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And let's take a look at this. And we're going to begin in verse 8. Verse 8 says, For... By grace you have been saved through faith. So there's the first part right here, the first part of this tension. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, so you didn't do it. Okay? It's a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So here you have this. Okay, You are saved by grace through faith. It's not something you do. It's not something you did. It's a gift from God. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It was, it was just given to you. It's not the result of your works or your effort or your obedience to the law. Okay? You can't brag about it. You can't take any credit for it. You had nothing to do with it. It's not about you and what you do. It's completely about God and what He has already done for you. 
But notice the next phrase. Paul says, For, here's his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now let that sink in just for a minute. And let's look at what Paul is saying here. Paul begins verse 10, actually with his word, three-letter word, for, F-O-R. He says, for we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship. Now, the reason why Paul uses this word for is because he's connecting this sentence to the previous two sentences. And in doing that, he is building an argument, which is exactly what Paul does in all of his letters. Paul is well-versed in Greek philosophy. He is well-versed in logic. And he writes his letters to be persuasive as well-crafted arguments to prove his points and support his theological positions. And in all of his letters, you will see phrases like for and because and therefore and so that... Okay? Because in all of this, in all of his letters, Paul builds his case for his theological and practical points that he wants to make. And this letter to Ephesians is exactly the same. He's making a case. Okay? He is making a point uh, that he's committed to. And so when he uses the word for, what he's doing, he's connecting verses 8 and 9 to verse 10. He's connecting them together. And so he says, and this he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see these phrases? All three of them are actually just one thought. They are connected together. They are a part of a whole. They are three parts of a bigger thought. And to simply quote one of these without the others is actually to run the risk of taking the text out of context. In fact, those people who simply will say, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I'm saved by grace through faith and there's nothing else that matters. And so don't you judge me and tell me what to do. People like that have already done that. They have taken this text out of context and they are perpetuating a false teaching because that's not all that Paul is saying here. There's more to that that's connected. He says, and he does say, you're saved by grace through faith, which is the truth because you are. You are saved by grace through faith. Nothing you can do to, to, can, can, can help that. I mean, I mean, nothing you can do can, can, can change that. You can't earn it, okay? So you're saved by grace through faith for we are his workmanship. You see, we're saved by grace through faith for Something. There's a reason for us to be saved by grace through faith. There's a reason why God condescended to reach down and sacrifice His own Son to pay the price to save us. We are saved for a reason. We're saved by grace through faith for we are His workmanship. We are the workmanship of God created, as He says, in Christ Jesus. And we were created in Christ Jesus for, again there's that word, for good works. We were created in Christ Jesus for the good works that God has already prepared for us to do. And then notice what it says. It knows that we should do what? We should walk in them. Well, what does that mean? What well, means that we should do them? You see, here's what Paul saying. You're saved by grace through faith. It's all God. He did it all. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's not your own effort. You were saved by grace through faith for a reason. And that reason that you were saved is that you're God's workmanship. You were handcrafted by God. You were remade by the hand of God through Christ. Okay, You've been remade through Christ for a reason. And the reason why you have been remade by God is to do the good works that He has planned for you to do. Okay? He has good work that He's already prepared and planned for you to do. He has been preparing and planning for it. It's already, already determined. He's already got stuff that He wants you to do. He has good works for you to do. So you were saved by grace through faith, and so you will do the good works that God has for you to do. That's the summary of those three verses. Okay? That's the summary of all three of those verses. You were saved by grace through faith to do the things that God has called you to do. So that you'll do the things that God he wants you to do. That's why you've been saved. By grace. 
through faith. God did not save you so you can go on living your life and not change. He did not save you so that you will just say, praise God, and continue living for yourself. He didn't say, you know, uh, He didn't save you so that you can just pray some prayer and then continue to walk in your sin and selfishly, you know, um, uh, do your own thing, right? That you can pursue your own agenda. No, He saved you for a purpose. And that purpose is to do the good works that He is calling you to do. You were saved by grace through faith to do the works that God wants for you to do. He has called you. He has saved you to be obedient which means God expects you to do them God expects you to be obedient to the work that he's called you to do that's why you were saved in the first place that's why James says faith without works is dead because he knows that God saved you for a reason to do the good works to be obedient and if you're not doing those good works and you probably don't have a real faith If you're not being obedient, then you probably is a sign that you don't even really know Christ. Yes, it's the truth that you're saved by grace through faith. Yes, it's true that you can't save yourself. But it's also true that without works, okay, without works, your faith is dead because you were saved by grace through faith for a reason. And the reason was to do good works. You were supposed to walk in them. You're supposed to do them. You're supposed to be obedient to God's will. And what James is saying is if you are not walking in them, if you're not doing what God is calling you to do, if you're not obedient to what God is saying in His Word, all right, your faith is dead. It is useless. Because you probably really don't have a relationship with Christ in the first place. You probably really you know, haven't met Christ. You've probably not even been saved. Because, because if you're saved, you will naturally be motivated, motivated by gratitude to obedience. You see, in this tension... Okay, between these two points is a reality, and the reality is about salvation. It's supported by this tension, and and what what this what this reality is is that if you truly meet Jesus and you experience His life giving grace and you turn to Him in faith, something happens to you. Okay, something has to change. Something has to be different. Because think about this: before Christ entered your life, you were spiritually dead. Before Christ entered your life, you were spiritually alone. Before Christ entered your life, you were spiritually blind. You were in the darkness, and you were in the hopeless state of slavery to your sin. But when Christ came into your life, He gave you a new life. You were reborn. You were made spiritually alive. When Christ came into your life, more than that, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you, take up permanent residence inside of you. And the Holy Spirit then living inside you goes to work inside of you, leading you and guiding you, as the Word says, into all truth and convicting you of sin and progressively showing you the truth and the will of God and helping you see what God wants you to do. When Christ came into your life, you stepped out of death and into life. When you, when Christ came into your life, you stepped out of out of light. I mean, out of darkness and into the light. Okay, all of that happens when you put your faith in Christ. Well, if all that happens when you put your faith in Christ, then how in the world can somebody not change? How can somebody not be motivated by gratitude to obedience? Well, it's impossible. It's impossible for someone to come into a saving relationship with Christ and and have all of that happen to them and not experience some sort of change. Salvation changes you. The Holy Spirit living inside of you changes you. Uh, Becoming spiritually alive changes you. Standing in the presence of Christ changes you. It changes how you think. It changes how you feel. It changes how you act. It changes how you see yourself. It changes how you see the world around you. I mean, one day you're doing something, right? And the next day your Holy Spirit is like whispering in your ear going, Man, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't be saying that. You shouldn't be talking to those people. You shouldn't be hanging around those people. Man, you shouldn't be acting like that. You need to be more gracious. You need to be more loving. Hey, you need to actually have more self-control. How many of you experienced that before? Yeah, we all have. You know why? Because if you're a Christian, you have experienced that. You see, in this tension between you know, being saved and, you know, by grace through faith, and faith without works is dead, is the truth that meeting Christ and accepting Him into your life changes you. Accepting the gift of salvation changes you. And it changes you is because when you turn to faith in Christ, what you're doing in that same moment is you're turning from something else. You're turning away from something else. You're turning away from your sin. You see, the, the, the reason you turn to Christ in the first place is because you have become aware of the fact that you are 
in sin. You realize that you're covered up in sin. You realize that this covers up every part of your life. You know that you're a sinner. And what's worse, you can't escape your sin on your own. Because you can't do enough of your own stuff and your own good works to overcome the power of sin. You can't even be obedient enough. And then you realize that there you are. Okay? You know, you're a sinner, can't fix it. And then there's these real, devastating, huge consequences for sin. And they are inescapable and devastating consequences that will last forever. And you're hopeless because you can't do anything about it. You can't save yourself. You're doomed to those consequences. And then you hear the gospel that Jesus can save you. And you turn away from your sin. And you turn towards Christ... And you turn away from the hopelessness in your life and the sin that condemns you. And you turn towards Christ and you grab a hold of your only hope, the risen King and Savior, Jesus. You grab a hold of Jesus through faith. But you turn towards Jesus through repentance. See, the act of turning is called repentance. In fact, that's what repentance means. It means to turn around. You see, in order to move towards Christ in faith, in order to grab a hold of the lifeline He has thrown you in faith, you must repent and turn away from your sin and turn toward Christ. You see, the very act of putting your faith in Christ requires from the beginning a change, a change in your direction. See, you you have to turn away from the sin and you have to turn towards Christ in order to put your faith in Christ. Coming to Christ is a change. That's why faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. And just like you cannot have salvation without both grace and truth, you cannot have conversion or salvation without both faith and repentance. You must have both. Repentance turns you toward Christ. Faith grabs a hold of Christ. Let me say that again. Repentance turns you toward Christ. Faith grabs a hold of Christ. So repentance is actually the first act of obedience. It's the first act of obedience that happens before faith. Okay? It precedes faith. Okay? And that thing that precedes faith is repentance. In fact, Peter says in Acts chapter 3, Repent therefore and turn back that your sin may be blotted out. Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Peter again says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the Christian life begins with a change. It begins with obedience. You repent and you turn from sin towards Christ and you embrace Him and you accept that free gift of salvation given by grace through faith. And the moment that happens, the moment that happens, you are different. The moment that happens, you change. You're a new person, the Bible says. The old is gone and the new has come. And James says the manifestation of that transformation, the proof of that change, the proof of the salvation that's in your life, is that you do the things that God's calling you to do. You do the good works. Right? You're obedient. You become obedient to God and you do the good works that God has prepared for you to do. Because as Paul says, that's why you were saved in the first place. And yes, you're both saved by grace through faith. And faith without works is dead. That is the truth. That is the tension where the truth exists. You're saved by, you know, you're saved you know, to obedience. You're saved toward obedience. Now understand, you're not obedient. Obedient to be saved, right? You're not saved because you're obedient, right? You are obedient because you already are saved. So you're not obedient to get saved. You are obedient because you are saved, because something changes in you. Because in the process of being saved, you should be moved with gratitude to willingly learn, okay, to become more and more obedient. And, and, to willing, and, and, and that willing obedience demonstrates for the world around you that you're actually saved. Your joyful and willing obedience to God, you know, and His Word is the proof of your salvation. Now, I know that there are going to be some of you who are going to push back against this idea, okay? And you're going to say, you know, that, you know that's just not right, right? You say, I'm, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no expectations of my obedience. And I don't need good works. I don't need to be, you know, need obedience to prove that I'm saved because I love God. And my love for God is proof that I am saved. 
I mean, I go to church, right? I worship Him, and I sing, and I love Him, and I, and I feel it in my heart. I feel that, that, that closeness to God. So I'm not, I'm not buying this obedience stuff. I don't have to change who I am. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do the works. Because I love God, and God loves me just as I am. And to that, I'm going to have a couple things to say. Number one, you're right. You are right. God loves you. And God loves you just as you are. In fact, He calls you uh, to come as you are. In fact, we sang that song this morning. Come just as you are. Right? He accepts you just as you are. But here's the thing. This is the part that you have to reconcile. God loves everyone. Okay? He loves all His creatures. He loves every person. Okay, but not every one of his creatures and not every person is going to receive the gift of eternal life. Not everyone who says that they love God or said that they believe in a God will receive eternal life. In fact, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. You see, the the issue isn't God loving you or you loving God. The issue is you actually receiving Christ as your Savior. And that only happens when you turn away from your sin through repentance and grab a hold of Christ in faith. Salvation isn't just simply about God loving us or us loving God. right? It's about us accepting His gracious gift. And you can't accept that gift without being obedient enough to repent from your sin and put your faith in Christ. Now, the second thing is uh, I really don't doubt that on some level that you love God. Okay? I, I don't doubt it at all. In fact, I believe that you have the deep emotional affection for God. All right? So I don't doubt it. But let me just be clear about this. And so I'll lean in here and I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Okay, what I want to say to you is this. Your emotional love for God in the context of salvation means nothing. I'm going to say that again. Your emotional love for God in the context of salvation means nothing. And I know that's hard to hear. And I know that might be even harder to swallow. And I know that might even hurt your feelings. And believe me, that is not my intention at all. I do not want to hurt your feelings. But your emotional love, like all emotional love, though important is fickle and is prone to change as circumstances change. In the context of salvation, that kind of emotional love means nothing. Now, before you get upset with me, before you begin to protest and give me dirty looks, let me explain this. When we talk about love, we, in English language, only have one word for it, love. But in the Greek language, there are four different words for what we call love. Four. Three of those are based on emotions, and one of them is based on a will or your decision to love. Three of them are emotional and conditional, and one of them is driven by a choice and is unconditional. Okay? And you've experienced all these in your life. In your own human interactions, you have known people who have this, all four of these kinds of loves, Right? And you've seen it with your own eyes. And people exhibit a strong emotional love for someone. But in the end, that emotional love, in in reality, didn't mean anything because it it all fell apart. For example, we all know parents who have children that they love very deeply. They feel a strong emotional connection to their kids. That kind of love in the Greek is called storgi. It's a natural affection for your children. You feel it naturally. Okay, And we know people who love their children like that. They have this strong emotion, emotional connection to their kids. They have strong emotions for their children. But somehow those same parents will still make decisions that are selfish and destructive for their own kids, knowingly that it's not good for their kids. There are parents that even though they feel emotions for their kids, will still put their own needs above their needs for their kids. They put their own need for relationships above their, their kids' need for stability. They put their own desire to party and have fun and be accepted above their needs of their kids to, to have stability and, and, and comfort and safety. But yet, 
They still have strong emotions for their kids. And you can't doubt that they love their kids. I mean, you've seen it before. You've seen it many, many times. Right? And the reason why this duality exists is because, because the parent's love is just simply built by an emotion. It's driven by an emotion. It isn't real unconditional love because real unconditional love is a love that's not about a feeling, but a love of action. It's a love of choice. It's a love of will. It's not simply just what you feel. It's what you, what you do. It's called agape <coughs> or agapeo. And this kind of love is selfless and sacrificial. And when parents love like this, they only, and not only do they feel love for their children, but they also put that love into action. They put their children's needs ahead of them. They put their kids' needs ahead of their own kids. They put their kids' emotional stability ahead of their own desire for fun or partying or sexual contact with someone. You know, that love is demonstrated by their choices and their actions in the real world. Okay? This isn't a love that you simply just express with words. It's a love that you express with what you do, with your actions. And the way that you provide for your kids, and the way you take care of your kids and support your kids, despite your emotions and despite how you feel in the moment. Okay? You've seen it also in relationships. I mean, when a man loves a woman and they're attracted to each other and they, you know, they feel that emotional love and everything's great, you know, and they're holding hands all the time and there's butterflies and all the world seems right and the birds are chirping, right? And they can't imagine how they would live another moment without the other person, right? But then life happens, right? And things get hard. And when the relationships and, and, and marriages that are built on that kind of emotional love, what happens? They fall apart when those emotions aren't there anymore because you can't sustain those emotional connections that way but real love is a decision and a commitment to love in spite of feelings and emotions real unconditional love says no matter how hard things get i'm here for you i'm not giving up on you real love says in marriage you know real real, real love in marriage is where you sacrifice and where you demonstrate your love by your actions. It's not what you just what you say. It's how you behave. Now, saying I love you is important. But what's more important is how you act. Because let's be honest, talk is cheap. <laughs> and your emotions are fickle. And it's the same way with the way you love God. Your emotional feeling that you have for God, though important, those emotions are not a clear demonstration of your love for Him. They do not just demonstrate that you, you know, love him or have faith in him. But your obedience does. In fact, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. It's very simply put. He doesn't say, if you love me, then you'll get all emotional during worship. Though it's good to get emotional during worship. I, I love that. Okay. He didn't say that, that, that if you love me, you'll feel these deep feelings and smile all the time. Which I think those are good things too. He said, if you love me, then do something. <laughs> if you love me, you'll keep my commands. You'll obey me. If you really love me uh, you know, and, and your love is motivated by gratitude, you will be moved. You'll be obedient to me. Now, just in case you think, well, that's not exactly what that verse means. Well, let's just <clears throat> understand that, that in the same chapter, <laughs> Jesus says, um, if anyone loves me, he will, he will keep my word. Can I read that again? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the words that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. You see, Jesus ties our love for him and our obedience to his word. Those things are connected Jesus ties our love for him to obedience to his word. Because here's the truth. God's love language, the way that God processes and sees love, is in fact your obedience. The way that you demonstrate to God that you love him isn't by how we say we feel. It is through obedience to doing what he said. If you love me, then you'll do what I say. Obedience is the man manifestation of a converted heart that is in love with Jesus. I'm going to say that one more time. Obedience is the manifestation of a converted heart that's in love with Jesus. The Apostle John said this. Everyone who believes in Jesus 
excuse me, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. The way that you say, God, I love you, is by obeying his commands, being obedient in doing the things that he called you to do. That's why James says, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith with my works. Because you can say what you want to say. And you can say, I love God, and I have faith in God. But unless you are moved by that love to obedience, your faith is actually dead. It's a phantom. It doesn't exist, regardless of your affection for God. If your love doesn't change you and move you to obedience, out of gratitude, there's a good chance that you don't even really love God the way that you think you do. In fact, let me offer you this morning. If you believe that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but your life has not changed in some way, and if you feel no desire to follow where God leads, and you have no desire to live the godly life that He's calling you to live, and you feel like God should be okay with your sin or everybody else's sin, whether it's pride or greed or lust or homosexuality or dishonesty or envy or laziness or adultery, if that is how you feel, then I, if I were you, would check my heart. I would check my heart. Because you are in fact saved only by grace through faith, but at the same time that faith without works or obedience is a dead faith. It's not real. Okay? And if your faith does not urge you on to obedience, then you need to reevaluate what you know about the gospel. And perhaps you need to talk to someone about it and find out about repentance and faith and turn to God and actually throw yourself upon Christ. Because I promise you, if you meet Jesus Christ and you understand what you have been saved from and you understand the price that, that it cost to set you free and you understand the grace that's been given to you, something inside of you has to change. It's inevitable. Now, on the other hand, if you're thinking, well, pastor, you're scaring me. I, I mean, I remember, you know, giving my life to Christ. And I remember God changing me. And I remember giving up the things that I, I shouldn't do. And I remember starting to do things I should do. But, but I still make mistakes. I still fall down. I still do things that I shouldn't do. Right? right? And, and I don't do the things that I should do. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous now because am I really saved? I mean, did I miss it? And, I, you know, I have to say is it's a good question. You see, understand, my goal isn't, isn't to create unnecessary doubt for you. But my goal, instead, is to cause you to take some time and examine yourself. Okay? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourself. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize... This about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. See, what Paul is saying is, if Christ is in you, then you're in the faith. Well, if Christ is in you, then you will be moved to obedience. There'll be, there'll be something in you that's urging you on to godliness, urging you on to good works, urging you on to, the, to, to be obedient. And here's the thing. If there's no desire in you to change, if there's no desire in you to obey Okay? That's the first sign that you might need to, to really, really evaluate whether or not you're in the faith. You might not actually have turned to Christ in repentance and grabbed a hold of Him in faith. You might just be someone who is a, who's, who's Christian in name, okay? but not really Christian in truth. I mean, you have no evidence of that in your life. Okay? Uh, I mean, if you have no evidence of, of change in your life and you're, or you're still like, involved in an egregious sin... Okay, whether, whether culture wants to tell you that it's not egregious or not, if the Bible says that it's egregious, it's egregious. So if you're caught up in an egregious sin in your life, okay, and you're not like you know, not very close to letting it go, or you have no desire to let it go, or you think that, that it should be okay, then you need to seriously re-examine yourself and see if you're actually in the faith. Now understand, I'm not talking about perfection here. Okay, let's just be clear about that. I'm not, I'm not saying that you're going to be perfect because you're not going to be perfect this side of eternity. It will not happen. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fall short. You're going to sin at times. And we all will. Okay, That's not the issue. 
The issue is, did you repent and turn to Christ in faith? And when you did, did your life begin to change? I mean, when you look back at your life, when you first met Jesus, are you a different person? I know I am, right? Are, are things in your life, are there things in your life that you don't do anymore because of obedience and forgiveness? Man, there's lots of things I don't do anymore. Okay? Are there things in your life that you started doing that God calls you to do, like being compassionate and forgiving and fighting the battle against lust, right? Are you growing? Do you feel the Holy Spirit convict you when, when you do something you know you shouldn't do? Do you feel the Holy Spirit convict you when you hear or read the Word of God? Do you feel like, like, like a growing desire inside of you uh, to be different and to do things different? Do you feel a growing desire inside of you to be more obedient? Do you feel you know, that conflict between your spirit and your flesh inside of you? Well, and if that's you, that means that you're actually in the process of God growing you. Okay? He's working on you. He's chipping away at the things in your life that, that need to be removed so that you can become more obedient and, 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 and have... You know, and, and, and have, have a, a, a changed life. And that's a good sign. That means that, they, that God is changing you. He's at work in you, changing you. And that you actually met Jesus and have faith in Him. And so my encouragement to you, okay, if that's you, you're actually growing and changing. My encouragement to you is to right now stop resisting. <laughs> stop resisting the work that the Spirit is doing inside of you. And embrace where God is leading you and continue to grow in obedience to do what God's calling you to do. Like that, where there's the application for this message and your homework. If you believe in Christ, right? If you have a real living faith, then obey what God's calling you to do right now. Stop resisting and obey. If God's calling you to get involved, you know, and you're dragging your feet, well, just say yes, Lord, and get, get busy getting involved and obey. Maybe God's calling you to get plugged into a small group and you've been thinking about it for weeks or months, but you just keep thinking about it, making excuses. Well, stop making excuses and obey and sign up. Maybe God's calling you to work on your marriage or your finances or, or your devotional time. Stop procrastinating, right? Stop making excuses and do it. Prove your love for God and obey. Maybe you're like, well, every time I go to work, I have this tendency to lose my temper and I say some things I shouldn't say. And God's really conv- you know, convicted me of it. Well, all I got to say is stop being a pansy <laughs> and obey. Do what God's calling you to do. Okay? Where it's time to stop gossiping and drinking too much, right? Whether, whether, it's, whether it's God calling you to fight against greed or lust or anything else that God's conv- convicting you of. Stop making excuses and make a commitment today and obey. Prove your love to God and obey. In fact, this is what I want you to do. You know, on your notes, I want you to write one thing that you know God is calling you to, to change. So it's just one thing. Write it down. And I know... For a fact, if you follow God, right, that there is something that He's calling you to do or change. Every one of you, okay? And it could be stop gossiping or join a small group or spend some time in the Word or stop being a jerk to your boss or get involved in the community or stop eating all the cookies and blaming your kids for it. I mean, whether, whatever it is, okay? Whatever it is, write it down. And once you write it down, then commit today, right now, to obey. Now, um... Don't obey because you're trying to make God love you more because he won't love you more because he already loves you as much as he's going to love you. And don't obey because you think you're going to get to heaven. We've talked about that. Salvation is by grace alone. Instead, obey because you love God and he is worthy of your love. Love God because he died and sacrificed so much for you. Okay? And because you know He loves you, and He did so much to, to save you, understand what He's calling you is ultimately going to be for your own good anyway, so you don't even have any excuses not to obey. Now, if you're someone who has actually taken you know, a step to put your faith in Christ, or perhaps someone who's prayed a prayer at some point in the past, but you're not sure if you actually have a relationship with Christ, you know, because... Because nothing in your life has changed. Or if you just never have actually taken that step, right? But you've decided you want to be saved. You want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can do that, okay? You can do that. And let me just walk you through this. In fact, it begins with you have to know something, right? The only way that you're actually going to seek God is once you understand the problem. That you have a problem that everybody has and everybody has had. Is you're a sinner, 
You are a grade A, number one, jerk face sinner. <laughs> I know that sounds funny, but it's the truth. You're a sinner. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. And, there's, you, know, and, and you were born that way. The Bible says, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And no one has to convince you of that. I mean, you might protest. And you might act like, oh, I'm not a sinner. But believe me, you know. You know the things that you've done. You know the things that you're capable of. You know the things that you, you know, will, will go do. All right? You know that you're a sinner. Now, you know that you're not right with God. All right? That's what the Bible says. And the thing is that you have to come to understand is that there's consequences for that sin. All right? You're a sinner. And what you have to understand is that because you're a sinner, not only will you physically die because of sin, because sin causes death, ultimately. Not only will you die because of sin, and not only will you, will you, will you suffer great loss and pain in this lifetime because of sin, if you step off into eternity and you die without Christ in your life, then you will face a forever reality of torment and pain and torture in hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Okay? That will not ever end. That's what you face, and that's what you deserve. Okay? It's hell. That's exactly what you deserve as a sinner. All sinners deserve it. I deserve that. So you're a sinner... And right now you're bound for an eternity in hell. That means if you step outside and get hit by a truck, then guess what? It's over. Your eternity begins now and there's no going back. All right? So you're a sinner. You're destined for hell. But guess what? You can't fix it. You can't do enough stuff to fix it. You can't, you know, um, you can't like rescue enough kittens or feed enough homeless people. Right? You can't be nice enough to people. You can't, you know, you can't wash enough cars. You can't do enough stuff. You can't be obedient enough. You can't do anything to save yourself. You're hopeless. In fact, the Bible says that our best efforts are filthy rags before God. Okay? Filthy rags are garbage before God. So you can't save yourself, which means, guess what? You not only are a sinner destined for hell, but you're hopeless. <laughs> There's no hope for you. Well, you need a Savior. But the good news is, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son and that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let me tell you what that means. God so loved the world that He did what in love people do. He gave. And what He gave was what was most precious to Him, His Son, Jesus Christ. And in return, Jesus gave His very life for you, those that God loves, so that you could have the opportunity to believe in Him. Because if you believe in Him, you will not perish, but have, the moment that you believe, eternal life. Okay, that's the good news. Okay? God made a way for you to be saved through Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to pay your debt so you can go free. All you need to do is repent, turn away from your sin, and turn towards Christ, and receive Him through faith. And you do that. As Paul says, by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And when you say that Jesus is Lord, what you're saying is, Jesus, you're the boss. Jesus, you're the king. Jesus, you rule my life. I don't rule my life. You're the Lord. Jesus is Lord. So confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead, proving that he is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh. And if you will do that, you will be saved. Now, if you're ready to do that, then let's just take a moment and pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, I come to you because I'm a sinner. I'm a broken, rotten sinner that, that can't save myself. There's nothing I can do, nothing I can say, there's nothing I can do to make up for it. And I realize that there's consequences, huge consequences that I don't want to face. But more than that, I realize that there's something I'm missing from my life, a relationship with you. And so, Lord, I just, I just come to you right now and I just place my trust in Jesus. I believe that you sent Jesus to, to pay the penalty for my sin. I believe that's exactly what happened. He died on the cross. He took my sin with him. He died, and then he rose again on the third day, proving that he is what he claims to be. And so, Lord, right now, I confess Jesus is Lord, and I believe with all my heart that you rose him from the dead. And I take you at your word on that. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd send the Holy Spirit in my life to convict me of my sin, to change me, to make me obedient, to chastise me. To help me to walk in ways that, 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 that prove to the rest of the world that I belong to you. And I pray that I would walk with you all the days of my life. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would just convince me over and over again that I belong to 
you. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for saving me. And Lord, we just pray for all those who are here. We pray for all those who are listening on SoundCloud. We pray, Lord God, that you would be glorified in their lives. We pray that you protect them, that you'd meet them where they, they need you today. And I pray that you'd raise up a people in this congregation who love you and are willing to storm the gates of hell. Love you and I praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.